Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Podmetic, and we are uh, back with another episode. I'm excited to bring um, uh, some more follow-up topics uh, related to uh, Hurricane Ian, and we'll, we'll get into that here in just a little bit. Um, before we get to that, though, got to always bring in my esteemed co-host, Sam Bradley. Sam, a uh, lot lot going on this week and um and still we're looking backwards to make sure that we learn everything we can about the response to the hurricane absolutely and uh i'm learning a lot from the, the friend that i took in from hurricane ian <laughs> and i'm just glad he's here and not there but we're, we've got an idmc show tonight uh, talking about some of their experiences uh, both in from ian and in Ukraine a bit. And uh, you know Gary Christman. He's been here with us before. He's had a rather strange day, so hopefully this will be a lot more relaxing. Um, Gary's going to talk about his uh, response to um, Ian with DMAT. And then we have Alicia Bean. She's one of our very new nurses who actually we sent her off into the fray to do an educational assignment. So this should be interesting. And Alicia, anytime Gary's talking, feel free to ask a question or throw a comment in if you want. So Gary, remind people who you are and and maybe you can start with uh, reminding people what a DMAT is and what it does. Yeah, it's it's definitely good to be back. I appreciate the invite. Um, it's always a pleasure to to speak to you guys on the podcast. I'm Gary Chrisman. I am the vice president of the Interstate Disaster Medical Collaborative (IDMC). I'm also the safety preparedness manager for St. Luke's Hospital in St. Louis, and I'm on a, a number of uh, disaster response teams. Um, including a, a state and federal uh, disaster medical assistance team. So just a, a quick brief description of, of what a DMAT is on, on the state and also federal side. Uh, they are not the first line of defense, of, of course, when it comes to a, a natural disaster uh, that's left to our first responders, the police, fire, EMS. DMAT is a makeup of nurses, doctors, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, paramedics, communications officers, administrators, um, logistics folks, and command staff that will go out in the field following a disaster and set up either a field hospital, um, which we call a BOO, base of operation. And it's usually worked out of tents um, and it's basically a critical care uh, emergency department. Um, most of them are able to do everything that an emergency department can do except for radiology. So we don't have the uh, x-ray capabilities, um, but we are able to treat anywhere from, you know, the green patient to yellow patient to red patient uh, with the support from the local health care, depending on how intact they are but then also um, working very closely with ground ambulances and or air ambulances, depending on um, the distance that we have to take these patients to the closest facility. Exactly. And, you know, in the cases where there may be a hospital that's functional, but not completely, we can actually 
set up a tent and do triage so we know which people actually know need to go into that ER. So there's a lot of different things that DMAT does, but we're not, we don't go in for 72 hours, so they still have to be self-sufficient until we can. It's, it's a huge cache that we have to carry, plus getting all the people out there. So, Yeah, and, and, and that's a good point, Sam, because the DMAT's very flexible in their response. It's either that full disaster um, base of operation or, as you said, a, a couple of tents outside of an emergency department to do decompression. Um, we can staff hospitals uh, in certain cases, and then, you know, in other cases, we may set up in a community center or an abandoned building and, and do kind of more of a neighborhood triage uh, first aid capabilities. So um, it, it really all depends on what the need is in the community and what the request is. Uh, as you mentioned, the, you know, it takes a little while for the locals to make that request uh, up to the state. State makes the request up to the federal government and then the federal government, if it's the federal DMAT team, will then decide if the, the mission is um, accepted and executed. So th there's a little bit of a process, uh, but most of the time, especially with hurricanes, you get that opportunity to kind of lean forward um, and stage in place to be able to have a better shot of getting in the field quicker. And then there's the odd event like Ground Zero, where we just seem to be the perfect type of healthcare team as federal employees to go in there and do with that. So, we, you know, we never know what we're going to get into. So no, tell, us, no. tell us, Gary, about um, your experience with Ian. Uh, with Ian, that was a, a, a federal response. Uh, Ian, of course, kind of tricked everybody with its course of um, destruction. There was a lot of thought of where the actual storm was going to go. So, you know, there was a lot of hospitals that were evacuated um, north of where Ian actually made landfall. Um, but the federal system did de deploy a couple of teams uh, to stage one north and one south uh, just to kind of give an opportunity for those teams to be able to either meet in the middle or um, attacked the disaster from the north and from the south. Uh, so my team was on the south side, and once the storm passed, the mission was very obvious uh, that, you know, it was going through Lee County, uh, Port Charlotte, you know, those areas. So it was just a matter of, you know, getting that assessment on the, on the ground to what was the infrastructure of the, of the healthcare. And, you know, as we know, uh, they get impacted just like the residents do. And um, unfortunately, in this type of a scenario, when the storm makes a very unpredicted right turn, you know, a lot of people were hit on it unaware and, you know, it, it causes more challenges. So we were able to go in and, and set up a full base of operations to, to support the community. So did you do that as a standalone or as in association with the hospital? Nope, it was a standalone base of operation. So, you know, it was your, your typical setup of, of tents that were able to provide that triage and that critical care uh, for that area. And then, you know, FEMA activates their ambulance contract um, that brings in thousands of ambulances, even pre-storm to be able to help start moving patients out of hospitals that are in the impact zone 
uh, long-term care facilities or even residents that are you know non-ambulatory but live at home. So they joined forces with DMAT and with uh, Urban Search and Rescue uh, in support of, of that operations as well. Yeah, in fact, I was uh, one of the ones that helped create that ambulance strike team out of California. So it's, and right after that, we had a number of places to put them. So <laughs> it turned out to be a good thing. Um, it really is a great resource, um, and, and I wasn't aware of that. So thank you for that um, contribution. <laughs> I guess I never system. mentioned that. Yeah, that's back when... Uh, Oh, 2006, when Arnold Schwarzenegger had the pet project of disaster, and we ended up doing mobile field hospitals, and I helped create the CalMAT, which was our state team, and the ambulance strike team, which again was put into use really quickly. So they all turned out to be good, good resources, and it's nice to see how all those assets are working together. And you made me think about Hurricane Sandy when we were actually in the hospital. The D matters were in the hospital working with the folks there in the ER, and it was so neat to see the different uniforms of both the locals and the D mats, and some really good relationships came out of that. So, yeah, it, it, it's really you know something that's very strong with the system is the ability for the teams to be able to come together, you know, and work with the locals but also be able to staff their rosters with, you know, other members from across the country. And you can have people from California, you can have people from New York, Missouri, um, Colorado on the same team doing the same mission. And there's really not that much of a challenge because, you know, it's a very dedicated group of individuals that know their mission, they're well-trained and they're willing to, you know, sacrifice those 14 days or whatever the ask is to be able to go out in the community and provide that care. Jamie, you have a question. Yeah, Gary, um, you know, we talk a lot here on the show about how every disaster is different, that every every situation brings its unique problems and challenges to the table. Um, what did you see when you were dealing with Ian as part of the DMAT team there that made it something um, different and offered a unique challenge for your team? That's a good point. Um, every disaster is different and, you know, every disaster drives the mission. And what the biggest challenge with the areas that were impacted was um, the fact that the healthcare systems, one, were without power, without potable water, and fairly heavily damaged um, from the storm itself. And matter of fact, one of them was actually damaged from a tornado from one of the rain bands that came in before uh, Ian actually made landfall. So, you know, those are challenges that really impact the community. Um, you know, that area of Florida was devastated by Hurricane Michael, the first Hurricane Michael, not the one that hit the panhandle, um, Irma, and then now you know, Ian, and they said the difference, I was talking to one of the residents and they said the biggest difference between Hurricane Michael, which was a cat five and Ian, which was maybe a couple of degrees, you know, wind velocity below a cat five is Michael hit like four or five miles of the community. 
because uh, it was a very small, compact, strong storm where Ian hit the community. It literally was that large enough that it, it hit the entire community. Flooding from the rain, the storm surge, you know, the winds from both the hurricane, the isolated tornadoes. And those are things that, you know, people don't realize that there's so much that happens during a hurricane. It's not just the winds. And I think that's a, a falsehood that a lot of people are like, hey, I've got storm shutters. I've got, you know, the ability to to protect myself. But then you get hit with the rain and the storm surge and the tornadoes. And, you know, it's just very devastating. Yeah, my friend told me that that eye wall sat over Naples, which is part of Sarasota, for like mm -hmm. 10 hours. And it was the worst part of the storm. And they didn't anticipate that. They, In their minds... This was an area that just wasn't going to get hit like that. So after all of that rain, of course, they lost electricity. They lost plumbing, lost most of their belongings. Um, it, you know, it was devastating. And I think I remember seeing a picture, Gary, where at one point in time, the, you know, the hurricane itself basically covered the whole state of California, or California, no, um, <laughs> Florida. I used to live there. Um, right like in that midsection. It, it, exactly. And, you know, it was. It was like four hours when it made landfall um, to the eye wall, a couple hours of you being in the eye wall, and then, you know, another four hours of the most devastating winds on the other side of the, the eye wall. And it went across Florida. It went up through Orlando. It went out Daytona Beach. And it, it still devastated as it transversed across the state of, you know, 20 plus inches of rain, tornadoes and wind. So it wasn't that, you know, isolated storm that, you know, I don't want to downplay a tornado, but, you know, tornadoes usually have a smaller footprint as far as the damage goes. It can be just as devastating or even worse at times, depending on the size of the tornado, but it usually doesn't impact you know, a couple hundred miles or even, you know, more that, that was just yeah. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Um, very much so. And the fact is I was hearing too, that the water wasn't going down. Mm -hmm. So they were walking around and of course, the longer that water sits there and, and picks up sewage and everything else. Um, yeah. You, you know, then you have disease issues going on after a period of time. It, Jamie did, I know it came back in as a hurricane. Did it, hit the east coast at all it, you were? um it it, gen it came back in as a category one i think in south carolina but it quickly dissipated as it got in but it drove inland um and kind of swung in up into ohio believe it or not it was it, it kind yeah. of before looping back out through um the northeast so we got a lot of rain i mean the storm was huge i mean so it would you know the the center of the storm was going through eastern ohio and we were getting rain bands pulled in off the atlantic <laughs> here in, near the baltimore region so it it was a big storm it, it was and you know that was the other thing that i i failed to mention and sam you you hit it on the head is that you know the sewage plant you know, those get flooded and then you lose um, pressure with inside the lines and contaminated water. So it, there's a lot of, of post-disaster disease outbreaks that 
is also a challenge that's you know ongoing from people that are drinking water, people that are trying to shower in the water. Uh, those things can be very devastating, not only just to the healthcare systems. Um, you know, potable water and electricity is is our key to successful business at a healthcare. But you know, just the community itself, living in a home that's been devastated, that's got black mold growing in it now, you're trying to get rid of everything that's wet or damaged. Um, you know, these place people in a, a very senior population in those areas didn't have a lot of time to get out. And a lot of them thought, well, you know, I've rode out other hurricanes. I think we'll be uh, fine. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that one. Yes. Well, they got smacked this time. Um, yeah, food was a big issue, too. I guess in that Naples area, they opened one store for one day, and it was cleaned out in minutes. And there were a whole bunch of people that couldn't take advantage of that, unfortunately. You know, we, we talk about the DMAT teams, but there are so many resources that just drop into these disaster zones to help out. Um, you've got, you know, FEMA that we talked about, the USAR teams, we talked about the ambulance strike teams, but you've got, you know, Baptist kitchens, you've got the Baptist with chainsaws, as I refer to them too, that <laughs> um, you've got, you know, disaster rescue barbecue. There are so many people that just drop everything to go down and help out. And it's really it really brings a tear to your eye to, to see the community come together like that for total strangers to be able to help them out. You bet. And on that note, I'm going to ask you one more question. Why do you keep going back into those disasters? What drives you to do that? Just that, to help people. Um, I've always been one that, to lend a hand any time that I could. That was definitely something I was brought up on is that, you know, if you can help, you do. And it really is kind of a, a civil duty uh, to be able to go out and to help support, you know, the United States in its time of need. You know, no matter what the citizens are, no matter what the state is, no matter where it is. Um, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they, they asked me the same question and they're like, but isn't it miserable? And my response was, is. I'm miserable for 14 days. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm helping out people that are going to be rebuilding for years. So I get to go back to my home. I get to go back to my job. And I've done my best to help bring them up to a better place following that disaster. And then there's a lot of resources that will take over once I leave. But it, it's really that civil duty to, to be able to help out. Um, in the time of disaster, no matter what it is, if it's a wildfire, if it's an earthquake, if it's a tornado, if it's a hurricane, um, if it's 9-11, you know, as you brought up earlier. Yeah, and, and knowing that you might have helped one person get through the day that may have lost everything or lost family members, you know, they're going to remember you for that. And yeah. Well worth it. Jamie, any other question on Gary's topic? No, I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's just it's great to hear um, I, another resource. We talk so much about the USAR teams, but the DMATs don't often get deployed or have their full setups deployed the way that um, Gary and his team did. So it's, it's good to hear how they are being utilized in these situations. 
Absolutely, and he, he's going to keep doing it for a while. Well, we have another guest here I want to bring in. She's also with our IDMC team, Alicia Bean. Hello, Alicia. Hello, how are you? Good. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself and what you do in real life? Uh, sure. In real life, uh, emergency room medicine is um, where I have been for a number of years now, um, being an ER nurse, I very much enjoy it. Trauma is definitely um, one of my most favorite pieces of it, but I've done a number of different um, units as far as nursing, from peds to uh, post-surgical, cath lab, things of that nature. But for uh, a good number of years now, emergency room medicine is kind of where I've, I've been. Not to say that I wouldn't do something else in the future, but I don't see myself leaving this anytime soon. Well, you're getting a different set of experiences now, and I got to say, you're a rock star. She hadn't <laughs> even gotten her feet on the ground, and we sent her off to Ukraine, and she goes willingly because nurses need some education out there. So <laughs> you yeah. amaze me. I got to tell you, I think Gary would <laughs> That's agree. That's very kind. <laughs> That's Absolutely. very kind. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Had you ever been in Ukraine or at that part of the world at all? Uh, so I do have some personal connection to Ukraine. I've never been to Ukraine, um, so I do have a love for the country, um, but that was my first time going there. Um, and when the opportunity came up, the fact that it was even a possibility just with schedules and things like that was just huge for me. I was so grateful. Um, but no, that was my very first time stepping foot into the country, uh, though uh, I've been well aware of everything that's going on over there since the start of um, of everything uh, in the spring. So going over there, starting off and, and heading over there, that was my first time. Yeah, I have been there. I've been there with the state of California and the Air National Guard doing training missions with their healthcare people, and they're awesome, wonderful people. And that's oh, why yeah. it hurt so much to to see this war happen. So when you got there. Um, what was it like? Did you find language barriers? How were the people that you interacted with? Definitely a language barrier. Um, I think uh, with my connections with uh, the people that I know from Ukraine, Russian actually is their primary language. Um, so it was really interesting to be very, very careful not to naturally try and translate into Russian and to be very intentional about um, speaking Ukrainian. So that was, for me personally, a little awkward um, just because that was just how I've interacted with the people that I know from the country. Um, so that was that threw me off. Um, I think definitely going through the country um, and interacting with the people, you just love them from the get-go. I mean, just such, it, without hesitation, the amount of times that um, somebody would take the time to just make a cup of coffee for me and not only make the cup of coffee, but then create this entire spread in some small little space where there's not even enough room to sit down, but it was just this beautiful spread of coffee and let's sit down and talk and just having those moments um, and just seeing the absolute beauty behind these people and what makes them, it was just unchanged. I will never be the same. It was amazing. So you speak Ukrainian? I do not. No. Okay. No, no, no. Google Translate. <laughs> I tried. Google Translate. 
They tried to get us to learn Russian. People definitely need some vowels in their language. It just did not work for me. I mean, they have a capital N in their language. I don't understand why it doesn't make the same sound as English. It's so hard. You can't even read it. Is. And then you get into Cyrillic. Oh my but yes, yeah, yeah. people are wonderful. Um, and, and they're just, you know, we had to learn a lot about each other. I remember this ambulance crew, and there were four of them on the ambulance, which was interesting. You know, we would brought T-shirts and different things, and you give them a T-shirt, and they had to give you something back. Yes. These people were scrambling around the ambulance, and one of them came and gave me his coffee cup. I would, yes. I would have to do that. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Souvenir, souvenir. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. No, yeah. I had a from day one, we had a translator, uh, and the translators had recognized, I, I'm a fan of coffee. Um, anybody <laughs> who knows me knows this. And so they had picked up on that in our first visit together. And they then for the rest of the week, were working on having coffee cups made for each of us with a saying that I had said on day one, like they just that much of a heart behind like the gift giving and just needing to, Oh, here you go. Like it was just, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. I guess you have to be there, but it truly is. Uh, mm -hmm. Jamie thoughts for yeah, Alicia, you said you were there for for training, and I, and I know we've we've talked to um, Dr. Kasha Hampton about what she did for the um, for uh, you know having to bridge some of the training gaps between um, the materials and resources they have there compared to what we have and are used to in the United States in the ER. Um, what kind of things did you run into that that were changes for you? So the mission originally when I went over there was really just to kind of assess and see what would be helpful for the nursing staff over there. And so that was the original plan when I went over there with the possibility of should they desire to have, um, you know, any kind of training or anything like that. There were a number of things that I um, customarily train here in the States. And so just being flexible in when there would be downtime or if we had an opportunity, we would do those things. The assessment for me in, in walking around and kind of seeing what the nurses needed, definitely um, going back into like the language barriers and what things were called or certain departments or units were referred to um, was a little bit of a struggle. Um, but what ended up happening is my entire stay ended up being training. I had very, very little true assessment time short of day one because there was such a need that the staff just wanted as much trauma teaching as they could get, shock teaching as they could get, CPR, stop the bleed, as much as they could get and were making time for their staff to receive those. And so then my entire time was just spent doing trainings like that because um, that's what they were concerned about and wanted to be prepared for in all circumstances. I think we're more accustomed to here in the States, um, not only the hospital being set up, but then our areas around certain hospitals being able to know what their capacity is, what they can handle, should we have any kind of mass casualty or what have you. They didn't seem to have that set up. And so when you started looking at not only the hospitals, but areas surrounding them, they're asking for those trainings because this is the first time they've ever thought that they needed it. Um, and so that was definitely a big struggle to realize not only do they need it, but no, they really need it. 
and were so receptive and and would bend over backwards just to be a part of any training. Gary? Yeah, that's interesting. That was what my question was going to be was, is what what were the levels of the hospitals? You know, in, in the United States, we're used to a level one or a level two or a level three or a specialty hospital. And then on the other side of that, what is their first response community? Do they have the paramedics or are they more just basic first responders? Interestingly enough, when, when we were doing assessment, and it took me probably a good couple of hours to really break this down translation-wise, their emergency room is not set up. And, I mean, in all actuality, our emergency rooms, it's an, a newer type of field anyway. But for them, their emergency room really is the ambulance shows up and then gets sent to whatever floor or specialty would be the most appropriate. So they're really in this receiving area for like 10, 15 minutes before the specialty comes down to get them. The reason that works for them is because apparently, and this is something I would love to actually go in and see one-on-one so that I can really understand it a little bit better, but apparently out in the field, they have a physician with them. And so their pre-hospital care really is doing what our ER does, just short of having radiology and things of that nature, lab, all the stuff that you would additionally need to diagnose, but the ER physician, well, not, they call them something different, but the physician would be out pre-hospital with the medics, and then they already come to receiving, knowing where they need to go. Yeah, unless it's changed, uh, they had four people on the ambulance, a nurse, a doc, a medic, and a driver Mm -hmm. in a van. Yeah. (laughs) If yep, you can that's imagine. It. But their plan was not to send people to the hospital if they could treat them outside the hospital. So mm-hmm. the doc would go in and start an IV or do a procedure or take sutures out or whatever they needed to do and wrap them up and they were good to go. So that unlike the U.S., they weren't sending people to the hospital that didn't need to go there. Mm-hmm. I also remember their hospitals were set up, I know in Kiev, where it, you know, there was like, it's like wheels on a spoke where they had mm-hmm. a central hospital in the middle and then all yeah. their specialty hospitals ran out of that. So it was right. really a system that seemed to work. I mean, we could have learned something by that. Yeah, and, and, and I completely agree with that statement. It definitely, when you sit back and think about it, it didn't make sense to me for the first couple of hours. And I honestly was thinking there was a translation issue because like to your question, Gary, what level trauma center, it wasn't even how they could break it down that way because it truly was based on what's the injury of the patient, where's the subspecialty that they need to go to, let's get them to that subspecialty. And the the major hospitals know how to do that very, very well. And it's definitely... Um, like you say, something we could learn from and something we could do a little bit different. I think the problem um, or where there was a huge need and desire was because everybody was used to that system and now everybody needed to know how to do the basic circulation, breathing, airway because of what they were now faced with on a day-to-day basis. So things couldn't just go to those central locations anymore. Now they were going to wherever they could show up to. Yeah, and one thing that was a little embarrassing for us, because we're thinking, well, they're the third world country and we're not, um, you know, after we had all of our exercises and we brought people into uh, like a secondary triage, 
Uh, we showed them how we bring people into our colored tents and we shoot them <laughs> on the other side. We brought, we brought C-130s in and, you know, and we'd go fly them off somewhere. So then the next day, the Ukrainians were showing us what they do. And they said, well, we don't have the ability to send them anywhere like that because there's nowhere to send them. They had a, a fully, I mean, Gary, three times the size of a DMAT tent. And it was a blow-up hospital, fully staffed blow-up hospital that had med surge, it had peds OB, it had everything. And we stood there with egg on our face going, oh, my God. You know, these <laughs> these people know what they're doing, but it's it fits their needs because they don't have a lot of places to send people. And uh, they they use that. This was right after they had a big earthquake in Turkey, and uh, you know it was just just mind boggling. But Alicia, we're looking to send you back, which you sound anxious to do. <laughs> and I'll have to put a plug in here. We're trying to get some money together to send her back. Gary, you want to touch on that part? Yeah, we're part of IDMC. Um, when the war started, we we took on the health and medical support for the humanitarian aid to Poland, which were taken in the refugees from Ukraine. And our mission's kind of focused more towards Ukraine now to support the hospitals within the country. So we have a number of different ways for fundraising, and one of them is to be able to go to the idmc.us website and to be able to support um, the mission for her to go over to Ukraine again, but also to help support, you know, our medical mission for them. It could be uh, medical equipment, it could be supplies. And there's a number of different things that they're in desperate need for uh, that we are trying to raise the money to be able to meet those requirements or those requests, um, either through hard donations or financial donations. And we should have a big banner, send Alicia back. <laughs> you, you've trained a lot of people in that short time you were over there. So. I did. I did. And I, I was grateful for the opportunity um, and grateful that they were willing to um, make so much time to send people to me because um, I could only travel so much. Um, but it was um, absolutely amazing how receptive and um, such a strong desire to learn as much as they could and and so clear about the things that they needed and the things that they're asking for are now outside of the realm of possibility to teach. Um, you know, it's the same thing that we want to learn here. Um, so it was just, it was amazing. They really, really, the only reason I was able to teach so many people, and it was a lot, they were long days for sure. Um, but one of those, like Gary was saying, they're going to be, it, it was a hard 14 days worth it because you realize that you were giving them, um, just a little bit more knowledge on top of the wealth of knowledge they already have so that they can face the next day when you're not there. Well, I'm sure the word's out, and they'll all be looking for you <laughs> when you come back. You're going to be very popular. Well, Jamie, we talk about training a lot. Um, what Alicia did was just amazing, and it reflected very well on us, and we can't wait to, to send her back because she seems to like doing that. What do you think? They well, definitely want her back. We're, we're proud of her for doing that. Yes, we are. Very much so. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's it's. 
interesting how that experiential training just comes around and becomes so valuable in these types of situations where people suddenly have a need to know um, things like stop the bleed, which for those of us that are nurses or paramedics and in the, especially in the emergency setting, it, it's stuff that's our bread and butter here in the United States. But for other systems in other countries, it's just not something that every facility needs to know. And until you have a war going on in your backyard and you have trauma patients coming in everywhere. Um, so uh, it's, it's important to have that type of training. And um, just want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Joe and the rest of the team at Paragon Medical Education Group. They're our sponsors. They help us bring the podcast to you every week. Um, and they do that type of training here in the U.S. and indeed in other parts of the world, too. Um, dealing with experiential training around disaster response. So if you're looking for a specific type of training or a customized training session for your um, your organization, your jurisdiction, um, they can put that together for you based upon your budget, based upon your specific needs. And you can reach them at paragonmedicalgroup.com. You can also find them linked over on disasterpodcast.com. And you'll find them as well over uh, lurking around in our Facebook group at um, the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. So uh, whatever you do, reach out to them and find out more about how they can bring something specific to your organization and really help uh, you discover um, exactly what you can do to make your people better prepared for the disasters that might strike your community. Sam, good episode, and, and I'm so glad we got to talk with Alicia and have Gary back on, and uh, I hope people will go. Um, it's idmc.org, correct, Gary? .us. .us. Okay, so idmc.us. i got to ask one more question. We started with four of us in, like, 2007. How many people do we have working on these missions now? Oh, I, just with inside of IDMC, we have at least 20. Um, and that's not counting all of our partners that we've brought on. We've, we've increased a hundredfold since the start of the war. Um, like you said, we were four individuals that were looking at, you know, the, the interstate mission and we took on the international mission of her, of uh, Ukraine, and the partners just really came together, and, and they are just amazing people out there that are are willing to dedicate their time, um, both in supporting them resource wise, and then also actually going over there and working with them. So it, it's it's been an incredible mission. Yeah, the pay's not too good, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed every day at, at, at what we're accomplishing and, and the people we're interacting with. So, yeah, Jamie, uh, you know, all I can say about this episode is we really, really, really appreciate the people that are disaster workers that are going out there to do training, including Dr. Joe. It's just it's just mind boggling how people come together like you guys were saying. So be safe, be prepared and and let's hope you don't have to deal with one in the future. 